Welcome to Rocking Your Prize. So the biggest, most important question in international development is how to generate sustained economic growth. To this end, we need to learn from the few countries that have caught up. South Korea is so critical here, once level with Ghana, but now achieving rapid growth and now almost the same GDP per capita as Italy. To understand catch up, I'm joined by Dr. Nathan Lane, Assistant Professor of Economics at Monash. In a previous podcast, we reviewed the empirics of industrial policy. Now we're going to focus on South Korea. Nathan, welcome back. It's great to be here. I'm excited. Well, we'll see. (laughs) In the 1970s, President Park sought to rapidly industrialize by targeting subsidies to specific industries, steel, shipbuilding, machinery, heavy industry, and petrochemicals. This was driven in part by an existential crisis, the militarization of North Korea and the withdrawal of US aid. This was a fight for survival. So how do you assess the effectiveness of this, uh, this policy intervention? Yeah, no, so, so you laid out the context really well. Um, so just to back up and give it mm-hmm. some more context as well. So before 1973 or 1972, depending on the year, um, South Korea had pursued a rather kind of all-out export drive of sorts. They were just kind of sector agnostic and if you could export you essentially got all sorts of goodies all sorts of carrots so this rapidly changed and kind of suddenly changed in the early 70s after what we think of as the nixon doctrine so nixon um makes a kind of famous announcement under you know large political pressure in the u.s and essentially says well, you know, the U.S. is not going to have any business directly involved in East Asian or Asian Pacific affairs. Yeah. And said so the U.S. is going to actually pull out and eventually pull out from mm. from um, from from Vietnam and f- pull out and withdraw from and de-escalate direct military kind of intervention and confrontation in the Asia Pacific region. And part of that promise, we usually think of this as associated with, um, you know, his pullout from from South Vietnam or then South Vietnam. But part of this was he was also kind of dedicated to and made kind of motions of you know, full troop withdrawal from South Korea. Of course, he didn't follow up on that. But at that time, in the early 70s, um, South Korea really, really did think um, that the U.S. would eventually fully pull out troops from from and what from would the that peninsula. mean to them? So at that point, they kind of enjoyed, depending on the the kind of military scholar you ask, they essentially had military parity with, strategic parity with the North, but that was only with USA. Oh really? Yeah. So they were very, very, very dependent on U.S. military aid, both the present of the presence of U.S. troops. So they worried that, but for the U.S., North Korea might invade. Absolutely, it. absolutely, and and. The U.S. indeed withdrew like a, a substantial amount of troops from the region with the promise of Fort Rome. So that increased the incentive for rapid industrialization. It did. It did because you know, uh, sitting in kind of Park's, you know, putting yourself in Park's shoes, President Park's shoes mm-hmm. at that time. Um, at this time, right as Nixon is making this announcement, North Korea looked like it was going to. Um, was making machinations for invasion. They, mm-hmm. There was a couple very high-profile kind of attacks against uh, South Korea from the north, um, some of which they got eerily close to perhaps assassinating the president. It's, it's but wait a minute, times. why in the 1960s, even if they didn't have that strong existential crisis in the 1960s, surely they still had an incentive to 
for economic growth. No, like, sure why, why were why were they trying their damnedest in the sixties? No, they were, and they really did pull this kind of. They were really going for an all-out military or an all-out export drive at this mm -hmm. time. Mm -hmm. But what really changed was this idea of having to go it alone mm. militarily. Mm -hmm. um, they felt very isolated from the U.S. Mm. Um, whereas in the pre during the previous regime, they thought the U.S. would kind of you know, was they they were um, they were uh, they had support and they were fellow travelers. Yeah, they had they had you know for instance they had they had kind of participated fully or rather robustly in the Vietnam War, yes. and they had. Um, and uh so with this existential crisis that increases the incentive for rapid industrialization and so why do they change why do they change to this focus on the sector specific focus on heavy income military? they felt betrayed by by the, by the u.s especially when the u.s tried uh, also had detente with with china around this time mm. so they're thinking they're looking at the way the world's moving at this mm. time and they're thinking we're not going to have military support we mm. have to perhaps um, develop our own domestic strategic industry. Yes. And so in doing that, in doing that, um, and in the midst of this crisis, they're thinking, okay, we have to develop a, a strategic military, um, for lack of a better word, kind of military industrial complex mm. domestically. Yes. And to, to somehow counter this vacuum that might, that's going to happen. Or this kind of, we're going to be left without U.S. military support. We need somehow a base to produce weapons one day. We need to somehow confront what might be an eventual invasion by the North. Um, and also at this time, there's a lot of political unrest domestically. And so Park kind of changes tack. He was he was a Democratic, well, kind of, mm. um, somewhat Democratic president before, and changes to kind of military autocracy and has kind of a self-coup at this point declares him himself kind of um, um, declares a national emergency launches this kind of um, this kind of uh, military dictatorship the cornerstone of which is this military big push for military industrial self-sufficiency so that they can one day kind of have their own military industrial base without um, without this kind of repeated promise of military aid yeah Right. So that was the big difference, is there was this very strategic component to it. Yes. So instead of just um, an all-out push, you know, to push kind of light industry and things like that, they kind of changed tack all of a sudden to kind of support a very discrete set of sectors. These sectors are kind of linked to military production or one day fulfilling or one day um, providing inputs for military production. Right. Now, the effectiveness of this policy is widely debated. Yes. Um, and hugely contentious. How did you try to find out the impact? Yeah, so I used, what, what I did um, is kind of try to analyze the policy using our conventional kind of contemporary um, causal inference toolbox, mm -hmm. which boils down to kind of what we call a difference in difference design. Because oh, you know, yeah. at one time, you know, one point in time, you have a very, you have a very, um, you have one trade regime or one kind of uh, policy regime before 1973, mm. which is you have this, this all out export push. Yes, non-sector specific. Yeah. Yes, yes. Very sector agnostic. And then suddenly you have a, a very discrete change in, in strategy towards this very surgical um, industrial policies aimed at a couple of sectors. Mm -hmm. So we're looking at the difference in that we're looking at the differential evolution of sectors that are targeted and how they perform and evolve pre and post this intervention. 
pre and post hysterect tack. So we're really using conventional, or I'm using very conventional econometric methods to trace and compare the differential evolution of sectors that were targeted by this policy versus those that were not targeted by this policy. Okay, but question, mm -hmm. why is comparing targeted and non-targeted industries the best counterfactual? Is it possible that the policy package targeting those industries, is, is, is that the only thing that might explain their success? Could there be anything else apart from the policy success explaining the success of the targeted industries you know what about flying geese from japan you know left, uh -huh. you know you know, uh, you know flying geese from japan what about taking advantage of cheap labor in their preferred sectors or the heightened global demand for particular exports for steel for example aha 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 no great question i think these all kind of boil down to what we think of as as um kind of events that might confound this policy, yeah. things that are hitting these sectors at the mm. same time that this mm. policy is rolling mm. in and that could have also affected them, yes. not just these policy-specific mm. things I'm thinking about. So we could think about things like like global patterns or kind of, um, let's say they were targeting things in which they thought there would be um, uh, heightened global demand for certain products. Yes. Maybe there's a there's secular global trends or, or I should say. Maybe everyone wants steel. Exactly. So maybe everyone wants steel, maybe everyone wants shipbuilding. Shipbuilding is a giant kind of thing that they target in this mm -hmm. policy. And it's not clear to me that there is shipbuilding was globally on the rise. In, in Sweden, my old country, you know, you had, shipbuilding is in fact kind of a sunset industry in many places. Steel was also highly competitive. It wasn't sh clear to me that steel was also kind of... There was a, well, the there prices were well, the, the prices weren't rising. If no, I didn't things. see that. Okay. No, no, no. I don't 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 see. Okay, what about my flying geese hypothesis? So flying geese, I think, is is something a bit different. I think it's something that does have buy and is substantial. That I think they did gain a lot from. In fact, they were they were indeed copying and trying to copy what Japan had done a few decades prior. Like a lot of this policy, in fact, the legal lees and the kind of sectoral composition of this policy really did borrow a lot from what Japan had done in the 1950s. They saw themselves as in the likeness of Japan. They saw themselves as like kind of Japan and lagged. Right, absolutely. Right? So you think they were using the same model, but the success of the targeted industries isn't due to the flying geese. No, I don't think it is. It is somewhat in that like... Intellectually due to it, but not... Intellectually yet. due to it, right, for okay. sure, for sure. Mm. But I think they were the beneficiaries in... And I think the timing was right in that they were moving into a bunch of sectors in which Japan was becoming increasingly not competitive in. So I do think the that I do think that the flying geese hypothesis um, does speak to the success of the policy in a way. But I think again, I think it was certainly due to the policy itself. I think in the absence of that policy, it's not obvious to me that they would have followed. I guess one thing one can do is think about well how successful were those flying these industries in the 1960s as compared to the 1970s exactly exactly i think that's that's a great point and, thank you and you thank could you. <laughs> and you can think of other places that weren't doing you think of other you know asian economies yeah, at the same right, time sure. right other that, neighboring that were the other could, neighbor yeah that, like, weren't using didn't have the same targeted industry so weren't able to take yeah, up so well right? surely philippines wasn't that right mm -hmm. um um yeah so but i think they were beneficiaries of being kind of proximate to uh, approximate to technologically where Japan was at that time. Okay, right. So we've got this difference in difference approach. We're going to uh, compare targeted and non-targeted industries. What outcome variables do you look at and why? Yeah, so just to back up a little. Oh, so, right. so I'm using very historic data. I'm using historic data that's not that's highly imperfect. I'm kind of an economic historian in many ways. And so 
I'm digitizing a lot of old industrial census data, but it's not micro data in the sense that this isn't firm or plant level data. I'm dealing with aggregates. And so because of that, because I'm mostly dealing with aggregates drawn from know, hard copies of the census or kind so of... So aggregates of what? So like so the amount of steel produced? Or? In an industry. I'm using, I'm looking at very detailed data, but it's at the five digit industry level. You know, kind of, a, you can think of a, um, a solid product, a kind of a product level, mm. kind of a granular level mm. nonetheless. It's, it's, it's at a level of detail that's somewhat lower than say like um, steel. Mm -hmm. It's much more disaggregated than okay, just the label okay. steel, but it's not disaggregated such that I'm looking at individual firms. Right. Okay. I'm looking at something that's somewhere between a product mm -hmm. and an industry. Right. Okay. Right. And so I'm looking at aggregate outcomes and by looking, because I'm using industry level data or aggregated data in economics, we usually use a lot of firm level data because using firm level data, allows us to measure things we think are really important, specifically total factor productivity. Sure. And so we can estimate total factor productivity from firm level data or micro data relatively well. Um, but of course, this setting kind of precludes that. So what I'm going to focus on is kind of much more basic or coarse measures of industrial performance things. But I think things are, mm -hmm. are, are, are nonetheless important mm -hmm. things like output growth, value added or gross output, whatever I use there. I'm going to look at things like labor productivity. Mm -hmm. Again, that's highly imperfect, mm -hmm. but it's, it's nonetheless something. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm really going to look at exports, but what I'm particularly interested in, in is um, the prices of output for these sectors. Cause we think of that as an indicator of, productivity gains. Sure. You know, if the prices are falling in the sectors that are being targeted, that's probably a good thing. That's yeah, a, yeah. That's a good sign of performance. So in lieu of not having very detailed, granular, firm level TFP, I'm going to kind of appeal to these, like kind of a cornucopia of different outcomes that we think hope might move in directions that hint to whether industrial performance is increasing or decreasing. In these right. Sectors. I'm with you. So output, labor productivity, increased export prices. Okay. So you show then the growth of the heavy and chemical industries. And then you look at network externalities and the forward and backward linkages. Why is that important? Yeah, yeah. So, Hirschman. So Albert Hirschman. Yeah, the Hirsch. The Hirsch. So I look at forward and, and backward linkages because, again, thinking about why we do industrial policy, we're often, and policymakers are often, and in this case, uh, Korea was, was surely interested in creating externalities from this policy. That is, you promote an individual sector like steel, they're not only interested in steel ascending or merging as a common dominant and dominant mm. industry, they're also worried about and also concerned about rather the performance of industries that use steel, that is the linkage effects. This linkage effect, is, as you, you mentioned, kind of hints back to um, scholars like Rasmussen and, and Albert Hirschman, this kind of theories from the 1950s that saw economic development or industrial development as kind of a process that percolates through an input-output network. That is, you grow a sector like steel, it's going to have knock-on effects, potentially positive effects for suppliers of steel like ore, or you know, potential positive effects for downstream indus industries that buy steel and use them in the production process. So if you give like me an example, examples of upstream and downstream industries that will be affected by this. Yeah, so let's again, let's turn to steel. Um, steel is one of the kind of mm. core industries that they were like, you, you, Park has all these the kind of quotes like, you know, steel is nation. I'm, I'm misquoting, but it's a like very kind of like mm. uh, iconic kind of um, 
uh, almost Stalinist mm. rhetoric about about his focus on steel. He's mm. really obsessed mm. with steel. And there's industries that supply to steel, industries like iron ore or coke or intermediate input suppliers into steel. And we think of these as upstream industries. Moreover, we can think of industries that use steel in turn in their production process. You think of these would be industries like um, industries that you manufacture machinery or automobile industries and things like that. So as we think of those as downstream industries. And so those we can think of those industries having strong linkages, either forward linkages, those being mm. downstream industries, or strong backward linkages, those being... And, ha and how do you industries. work this out? How do you work out the effects on those linkages? So what I did was I opened up what, what we think of as the input-output accounts, the input-output tables, which are these kind of giant accounts that show kind of the flows of commodities or the kind of share of purchases that go from one sector to another sector. It kind of maps out and kind of gives you um, a nice representation of the linkages within an economy. And the Bank of Korea was collecting these at the time. Many, many kind of countries do um, um, do collect these types of statistics. And uh, South Korea uh, invested a lot of effort into collecting nice input-output statistics at this time. Um, sadly, the really detailed input-output statistics weren't yet digitized, so that had to do some digitization there. What does it mean by doing digitization? it? Digital? Can I speak? Digitization. <laughs> <laughs> so it means like so, like what was only available was like hand, like scanned or hand, like the the hard copy mm. um, input output mm -hmm. tables. Mm -hmm. It's just pages and pages mm -hmm. and pages of columns of of uh, what an input table would be, input output table would be. But instead of being in a machine readable format, instead of being in an Excel table. Yeah. So which, how do you convert that? Well, yeah, I used an, uh, I used, for that I used optical character recognition software to kind of... So you just take a photo and that converts it to an Excel sheet? Scanned it, scanned it, and, um, and, uh, did OCR, optical yeah. character How long, recognition. Yeah, I'm interested, how long did that take, like, in terms of time? That wasn't too bad, but it, it was not the best print quality, so mm. that took a while to, it takes a while to both scan that and then correct for all the errors that might... Oh, I see, so you have to manually mm -hmm, double check mm -hmm, everything. Mm -hmm. Yes, and the OCR engine I used was an engine that could be trained, so it's a mm. kind of machine learning algorithm ah, fun. that can be trained, and so it took some while to train it and get it kind of uh, up and working. Like but a little pet. Like a little pet, indeed, like a little pet. Like a little pet that gets that misbehaves a lot. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so, yeah, what yeah. Do you, so, so having done all this, this sounds kind of tedious, but anyway. Yeah, it's <laughs> really tedious. Having done, having done all this grunt work, um, what do you find in terms of forward linkages? So yeah, so we find that, that um, a couple things happened. That what was really important was these forward linkages. Mm. Or what, you know, so we find that the, the policy, indeed it grew, it allowed industries like Seal to grow. Mm. And so they expanded really rapidly. They kept expanding even after the, the policy had ended. It was about a, a policy that, that lasted for about six years. And so after it ended, you see the steel industry, again, one of the industries that was targeted, one of the strategic sectors that was targeted by this policy, they grew and kept kind of growing after the policy had, had, had sunset. And 
importantly, prices in this industry has declined. Right. Pretty, 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 um, pretty substantial. So that enables other industries to become exactly. more competitive. Exactly. Exactly. Right? So what you see, and what what I see, is that industries with strong forward links or industries that were downstream that purchased and used yes. a lot of these strategic inputs these strategic sector inputs in their production process which are now cheaper they tended to i see that they have more entry into these sectors they have more employment growth they have larger output growth and they themselves also you also see price price reductions in these sectors as well can i ask a question here so yeah. the steel that was being produced in south korea was that then cheaper than the steel that was available on the global market? Oh, it was It was becoming more and more competitive relative but to global market. But still not cheaper? Um, actually, that's a good question. Because I'm saying, why would it make a difference to have locally produced steel? Why couldn't these those other industries just buy it on the global market? Oh, oh, oh it's a great question. It's a great question. Um, um, yeah, yeah. So they were becoming locally competitive, mm -hmm. but I think it was advantageous for a lot of firms to be able to use um, steel that was like produced so proximate to their production processes. That is, there were these kind of large cities that kind of popped up where a lot of this heavy chemical industry production was taking place. So you didn't, you weren't subjected to much of the trade costs. If you so have, I'd be, if, I'd if be curious, to, I'd be right curious to, to know. After taking into account the price of steel on the global market, mm. after taking into account transport costs and logistical costs, oh, was there parity? Yeah, how, yeah. How they differ? And if they do, and if they do differ, and if the local steel is still more expensive, then why why would that be a good thing? Anyway. Yeah, 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 no, 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 it's a fair question, it's a fair question. But it's fine if you um, can't answer it, it's okay, no worries, no worries, we'll just put that in the ledger. No, 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 I think it's like, um, I can look at the global, I can definitely, I think it definitely pays to thinking about the relative price, the relative competitiveness. Of I would just be curious, that why would it be an advantage to have still expensive locally produced steel? Oh, no, so if you had expensive locally produced steel, that would be a problem. Yeah. That would indeed yeah, be a problem, yeah. and... Um, I mean, relative to the global market, yeah. And in fact, and in fact, I think this is a really good point because I think the way steel industrial policy, the effects of steel industrial policies around the world, what we usually see from work like Bruce Blonigan, yes, right, and is that steel industrial policies usually correlated with higher output prices in steel sectors. That in many economies, industries don't successfully produce cheap steel. And so this ends up harming a lot of downstream industries, especially in export performance. And that's what economists like Bruce Blonigan look at. And so if had, I think, had South Korea not been successful at reducing the price of steel, had they not been successful at producing globally competitive steel, I think it would have definitely been a problem for domestic producers right. for the reasons that you kind of hinted mm -hmm. at. Okay, next question. So that's the forward linkages. What about the backward linkages? What do you find in terms of backward linkages? So the effects on the backward linkages are kind of mute. They're kind of strange. They're kind of, um, they're not quite clear. On average, they're kind of, there's little to no effect. On those that are most directly connected, mm. those that supply most direct products, or a high share of products directly to mm. the treated industries, these treated strategic mm. industries, 
I find that there's actually some contraction in these industries. That's surprising. It is, it is, because like people like Albert Hirschman and like, like kind of classic industrial policy theorists think, okay, you, you, you give a bunch of subsidies, you, you promote steel, there should be these strong backward linkage effects. You know, you, steel increases, you should have like giant demand effects for yeah, 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 yeah. folks producing yeah, exactly. the inputs into steel. And so what actually happened here is that South Korea was pretty smart in the design of the policy. And what they did for a lot of these strategic sectors, what they allowed strategic sectors to do was import goods freely from abroad. Oh, right. You know, because, again, you hinted at this mm. in the previous question, it, it really is helpful to have cheap products yes. imported abroad from abroad mm. to use, be used in the production process. And so, with that in mind, steel and other industries that were promoted were allowed to import intermediate goods readily and without tariffs in order to to um in order to subsidize production and so what does that mean for the backward link sectors what does that mean for the suppliers who were upstream that meant that they were actually subjected to trade competition right so because i'm a targeted industry i'm allowed to import things freely yeah, yeah, from yeah, abroad yeah. i'm going to subject these these kind of upstream suppliers to trade competition I actually see that there was substantial trade competition that these upstream kind of more primitive sectors were subjected to and that trade competition perhaps interesting point wasn't enough to get to make them more competitive because they, they still suffered a exactly exactly and that, that's an interesting point right about the you know some people theorize that trade competition will inevitably lead to you know industries becoming more competitive yes right? yes yes yes, right, yes, right. yes anyway so now i want to interrupt because now I want to introduce a guest interviewer. So Pseudo Erasmus, <laughs> Pseudo Erasmus, our friend, uh. has emailed me some questions and I'm going to read them out verbatim in what I imagine would be his tone. So please bear with me. So. The heavy chemical industry push was bad for backward linkages. You discuss this as an unanticipated mixed effects of industrial policy with a tone mildly contradicting Hirschman. But in reality, According to the information you yourself provide, the backward linkages most affected were the metal ore and mineral processors! Exclamation mark! Capital letters, <laughs> capital letters, IMO, in my opinion. This is a, again, capital letters, beautiful demonstration of dynamic comparative advantage in action. A country using IP to create heavy industries. Asterix, he's really into the the, the very yeah, sentence construction. Yeah, yeah. Asterix at the expense of the raw material processes. I think this is much more in the spirit of Hirschman than otherwise. Oh. People talk about countries moving up the value chain, but here is South Korea doing it by deliberate policy. Yes. Yes, these are great points. I like, I like, I like these points. These are fantastic. And I think it speaks to also to my experience in Vietnam. So, for example, in Vietnam, Cambodia, also Bangladesh, you might have a manufacturing industry, you might have garment production, but it's cut, make, trim, not necessarily benefiting uh, cotton production. You know, many of the imports uh, inputs are just sourced from China, uh, causing trade Absolutely. deficits. So that that's very much a, a common problem in industrialization, right? Absolutely, and I think he uh, that that for sure what you described is going on and for sure um pseudo's point about call, no no we call him pseudo call, call, fine, call him pseudo fine. right yeah. yeah so pseudo's point about dynamic competitive advantage i think is a good one um yeah i, I don't know if i am contradicting hirschman or not okay. i do know but a lot of people who read hirschman i have talked mm. about this before mm. in, in other contexts um 
I think read a lot from Hirschman that we should maybe promote that... I think people read a lot from Hirschman that this idea that there will be these demand effects or these backward mm -hmm. linkage effects from industrial policy that can be helpful and downplay the forward linkage effects. Of course, I think, I think, you know, that's, that, that's kind of a weak criticism of Hirschman because I think he, he was right about a lot of things. Um, of course, not everything, but I think indeed I am showing an example of dynamic comparative advantage and that you do see here government policy is doing something to promote or to create comparative advantage in industries that I think they might have a latent comparative advantage in. And in that way, I do think it does vindicate some of the ideas of Hirschman and some of the ideas of people who kind of argued for kind of thinking about how government policy can and might be able to produce dynamic comparative advantage. Mm. Yeah. And I guess, you know, whether Hirschman is right or wrong will just depend on the, sp the specific policy configuration yeah. and the fact that they allowed input comp competition for those particular Absolutely. inputs yep. you know exactly so whereas if you had an all-out isi thing exactly. exactly exactly so i think you could you know get hirschman off the hook on that oh, absolutely so absolutely. i'm just you know the diehard hirschman fan no 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 <laughs> right very sympathetic yeah yeah absolutely so, right okay so back to back to pseudo and i'm going to continue in the the original style oh, please right it's strongly implied by Amston that taiwanese industrial policy helped build input supplies to the targeted industries my favourite example mm. is bicycles. Within mm. 10 years after policy was in effect, Taiwan could domestically source most of the inputs to the bicycle assemblers. And let's face it, says Sudo, in terms of implied manufacturing skill knowledge, creating an agglomeration of input manufacturers to supply the bicycle industry is much more important than having a bicycle industry per se. Oh, that's interesting. That's that was interesting. my uh, computer adding a noise for dramatic effect. I liked it. It was, it was perfect timing. <laughs> perfect timing. <laughs> right, yeah. No, this goes a lot to what you were saying. Yeah, exactly, right. right. It goes a lot to what you were saying about what we see in some middle-income countries. The middle-income trap, or, in a sense, maybe. Absolutely. I think a lot of people think of this as like a component of the middle-income trap, right? I think a lot of people do think of this as a component of the middle-income trap, mm. per se. This idea, like you said, in Vietnam. You, in Vietnam, you see this kind of thing going on where... Um, was it you have the 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 knockdown motorcycle kits that the people that yes. they use for production? Yes. There, it's like you ship an entire motorcycle kit from an East Asian economy. You all the parts are shipped in. They merely assemble it there and ship it out. So yeah. you don't have it's a kind of low value added. Yeah, absolutely. Um, activity. It's a huge problem, right? Yeah. So so the idea of of I think more work has to be done to think about policies that can. Um, enable the growth of industries that supply to this type of economic activity, mm. and and there's just uh, surprisingly little work done on that, which is always kind of shocks me because there's because it's a vital importance for Vietnam, Cambodia. You know, you know, they obviously have a number of two challenges. One is yes, how to move yes. up the value chain in yes. what they export and to be exporting more complex products, and to some extent, Vietnam is doing that with electronics, but also to get these inputs because otherwise they will just have this growing trade deficit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So holding constant the issue of trade deficits, mm. right? Mm. Um, I think I think there are there it is Well it's a missed opportunity. If no, no, there. absolutely, absolutely. It's like well, you know, here you have proximate you have you have SOEs or similarly situated um, firms and manufacturers who could potentially be suppliers into yes. these 
kind of like very very important industries. Uh, um, and so, well, why aren't they pre- why aren't they grow why aren't they emerging to be um, suppliers into these kinds of uh... yeah? It's a big question. We need some more research on that. Okay, exactly. And, and you have things like domestic content um, requirements. Yeah, you have things like domestic content requirements mm. that are hugely important and, mm. and are, are pretty pretty ubiquitous. Yes. And um, the efficacy of these, I, I don't know much. To, I mean, a lot of people have very clear thoughts on the efficacy of domestic content requirements and, and how useful they are. Mm. I really have very little knowledge in insofar as their efficacy and how they're able to work because I've seen so few um, studies of actually the kind of impact of these that these policies have. I mean, sure, people have very good arguments for why they might be deleterious to mm. um, to, uh, to to foreign suppliers yes. who, who they yeah. know, who are compelled to to buy domestic content. Um, but of course, I, I know very little about the efficacy of these things. Mm. And mm. you see these, you know, these types of um, you know, these, of, of course, very controversial policies. We think, you know, as we speak, what India is locked in kind of a, a war with the U.S. over domestic content requirements um, that they impose to try to kind of promote domestic green energy, domestic green sectors that supply inputs into green energy. Yes, yes. Right. And so um, what the impacts of these these policies were, other than getting them into kind of a, um, a war with the, uh, vis-a-vis the WTO with the U.S., what the effects of these were, I have, very, I don't, I have like pretty, pretty little knowledge on what these, what, how these policies worked and whether mm. they work or not. Mm. And I think in general, the body of knowledge we have in industrial development, um, we're missing a lot of carefully done impact studies on this type of thing. Mm. Yeah. Okay, let me go back to Sweden. Right. Perhaps that's just as true for steel and autos. It's not so much that you can make steel and assemble autos, brackets, many countries have done that, e.g. Ghana and Argentina by importing all the parts and equipment, close brackets, But the fact that you can manufacture a substantial part of the value added, i.e. the domestic content, is high. I'm not saying, says Sudo, that high domestic content is per se, is good per se. But the ability to have high domestic content in a technically sophisticated product is a sign of the sophistication and the complexity of an economy. Yeah. No, I I like what I I pretty much agree. I think Mm. that's a good point. Um, And again, I have no... No, I don't have a view that domestic content per se is good, but you can think of the ability to produce and supply to you know um, FDI owned industries and and uh, and kind of um, uh, multinationals who come into economy. It seems like an important thing, and it seems like a missed opportunity not to be able to do so because it seems like there can be some learning. What we know a little from kind of the cluster literature and the multinational literatures, there can be things like technological transfer. There can be benefits to these upstream suppliers that can, uh, in an economy. And so... And that's an interesting point about going back to flying geese. It's interesting that we see flying geese in the assembly, but not in the inputs, in the in the you know creation of the inputs. So I don't know if we do. I don't know if we. Or you're you're guessing with. Well, I'm saying like flying geese in the in the China plus one strategy. So as uh, urban wages and land costs rise in China, we see more Chinese for. Oh, or as Trump imposes uh, trade barriers against China, then we see more of those Chinese uh, Ah, producers ah, offshoring to Vietnam, uh, Cambodia. Uh, Myanmar, for yes, example. Yes, yes. But then, why I'm asking? So that assembly is moving 
assembly yes. is moving, but why are these inputs not also moving in that flying geese model? Yes, 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 yes. I that's think that's interesting. I no, no, know. no. I think I think that's super interesting. Because you'd sort of expect the same logic to apply, you know. Sure, sure. It's a curiosity. It a is. curiosity. It is, and I think I think I think um, and I do think that the Suda's point is well taken in that um, you know. It's not that we just want not uh, there. You just don't want it's. How do I say it? I think the point is well taken because it's not that you're supplying to multinational or new industries from abroad or new foreign direct investment from abroad that's really key per se. But one thinks that if you want to move up the supply chain or mm -hmm. move up the val glo the global yes. value yes. Uh, the value chain in some way, that that will require better uh, kind of more sophisticated industries more sophisticated inputs and things like that. Especially in a context of automation, because that, that assembly oh, sure. part is going to become, you know... Absolutely, absolutely. Even more fragile, even more vulnerable. Sure. You know, assembly, that the, the low-skilled work, and if you're not doing the inputs at all, yeah, that will make sure, you much more Sure, sure, sure. Right, let me go back to Sudo, if I may. No, please. Right. So your paper suggests something similar might have happened with the heavy and chemical industry, mm. but in reverse. Mm. Unlike with the Taiwan bicycle example, the targeted HCI industries, capital letters, were the sophisticated input suppliers. You're surprising, striking, and tantalizing figure 13. <laughs> and figure 13 maybe we'll put that separately. Uh, tantalizing figure 13. I like this. I like this. I wish I had a tantalizing figure 13. Right, okay. Shows that the total linkage effects were persistent and rising even though direct effects are falling over time, exclamation mark. And the list of downstream industries benefiting from the growth of the HCI sector is, capital letters, very interesting. Jewelry, yes. plas plastics, synthetic fibers, etc. So, HCI promotion had widespread and pervasive effects across the South Korean economy, well beyond the, target, the directly yes, targeted yes. sectors. This is really an amazing result and quite beyond what other recent IP papers do. And therefore, this aspect is criminally underappreciated. Oh, I'll take it. I will... <laughs> well, yeah, well received. No, 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 no. No, again, I think it goes to the point of that, you know, there is perhaps benefits from promoting more kind of upstream industries. Of course, there were upstream industries like in this yeah. case, in the mm. HCI case, such as those industries that were supplying directly mm. to mm. HCI sectors or targeted mm. sectors. Mm. They did contract. But I think of, um, of in general, many of the sectors that were targeted by HCI were indeed more upstream sectors, if you think of the totality of the input-output table and the input-output network. And so I think there are benefits for downstream sectors, if you do promote these types of industries, and it gets a little back to this mm. kind of tangential or dovetails mm. somewhat with the with the um, the the um, domestic content yeah. requirement mm. point, but I think here, you know, I think I think the evolution of more advanced, more complex sectors in the South Korean economy is that the evolution of the firms and industries that we most associate with. Uh, South Korea today, one can't help but to think, oh, those were probably probably enabled by a policy such as this mm. that spurred the use of the inputs that made the outputs for these 
nascent industries much cheaper, much more successful on the global market uh, eventually. Okay, thank yeah. you. Now I need to go back to Sudo, if I may. Oh, please. Right. I don't, I don't know if this is how he speaks, but this is how I imagine he speaks. I like it, though. I like it. No, no. <laughs> As you know, so many developing countries have manufacturing sectors whose productivity is high by global standards, brackets, i.e. there is an unconditional convergence in manufacturing or perhaps just tradables, close brackets. But the rest of the economy has low productivity. One reason could be that the spillovers from manufacturing in most developing countries must be more limited than was the case in South Korea or East Asia. Perhaps their IPs had less pervasive effects across the whole economy, just as you suggest. Aha. Uh -huh. I do think this is the case. And I think it can go back to the case of unsuccessful industrial policy. Mm. I think it's a good point that I think... The industrial policy can have very serious consequences if it's not carried out well. Yeah. And if it has the effect of, say, increasing the price of the products that it's protecting mm. or the, the products that it's targeting. And if it does increase the price of the products it's targeting, or if it doesn't increase the size of the industries it's targeting, then you could think it, it would have mute or even negative effects on other sectors vis-a-vis -vis linkages mm, in the economy. Mm. So could it exacerbate and create kind of muted spillovers, the types that I think Sudo is hinting to. Mm. And I think, you know, often what was important in South Korea, I think, is that it did seem to reduce the price of the sectors that were targeted by this industrial policy. And again, going back to Bruce Blonigan's work on steel industrial mm. policy around the world, I think one of the major differences I, I get from his work um, one of the major differences with industrial policy I read from his work is mm. that industrial policy is successful, well, often not, but when it is successful, it's successful when it reduces the price of the products that it's targeting and enables the expansion and enables the better performance in the sectors that use these goods. Right. And so, yeah. No, I'm with you. Okay, I need to go back to pseudo. So I think when industrial yeah, policy, sorry. so I think when industrial policy is done poorly, which is often done, yeah, yeah. it can create it can create the kind of we don't see the effects that we see in Taiwan and South Korea and other places. Instead, we probably see and we often do see pretty negative effects of industrial policy vis-a-vis mm. -vis network effects. Mm. And I guess that that speaks to a point of which outcome variables to choose. And obviously, you can select a, a wide range. But maybe if you focus on prices rather than Prices will give you a view of what's likely to happen in the longer run. You know, prices would suggest a sort of structural shift. You know, the prices enable you to foresee perhaps what will happen in other industries because they will take a bit. Yeah, exactly. I think I think prices are a nice indicator because mm. because, you know, these are these are industries that are producing goods for other sectors. Right, Nathan. So now I need to return to Sudo. And I think uh, this is intended to be a challenging question for you. So, Sudo says, this invites a question. You clearly demonstrate, and I would just like to add for the listener that Nathan now has his head in his hands thinking carefully. <laughs> thinking carefully. You clearly demonstrate that HCI had, a lo had large effects. But you say nothing, and this is put in bold, which is a new typeface which he hasn't used before. <laughs> nothing. About the aggregate, I just want to add, there's been a wide range of, we've had asterisks, we've had yeah. capitals, we've had exclamation marks, all a range of ways of adding emphasis. And I appreciate that. And that's why I've tried to convey that orally. Um, so I must apologize to, to the listeners that I've really tried to 
demonstrate the drama of, of this written <laughs> word. Okay. So, but you say nothing, Nathan. You say nothing about the aggregate effects. I understand why you would not do so in the paper. But can you take a stab at it right now? Smiley face. And here Pseudo uses the old school sign of emojis. He doesn't use the, the, the pre-packaged ones. DIY. <laughs> yeah, yeah. DIY. Just hazard a guess, says Pseudo. What share of Korean growth after 1973 can be accounted for by growth in the value added of both the targeted sectors and the forward-linked sectors? Ooh, Question mark. Ooh, 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 ooh. So he hit... Spill on... the tea. Yeah, this is... So... This, okay, I'll, I'll back up for a second. Yeah. So, so, pseudo hits on an important critique and I think an important limitation of kind of those of us who are taking causal contemporary econometric tools and trying to answer questions about causality and industrial policy yes. with these tools, specifically when we use within country variation as... When we look at variation and the growth of um, of different sectors within an economy or different regions within an economy, and it gets hard to think about what are the aggregate effects of these policies. How do these policies aggregate up and affect the 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 change in GDP, or the change in aggregate welfare of an economy? And um, and they're right in saying I don't do that in the paper because this is a hard thing to do. Mm. Um, it's something I did play around with. I got. Oh, what, you looked into it. I did. I did. Mm. I did. Um, I think anyone who who would do this type of study would be tempted to do so. Um, but it's a hard problem. It is a hard problem for me to work out. Um, I'm currently working on maybe applying Ernest Liu's tools, some of the tools from his Distortion print. centrality. Yes, exactly, which can get you an aspect or kind of might be able to get you some measure of... Um, How would distortion centrality help you work out the aggregate effects? So... So his framework boils down, his, his kind of very yeah, nice framework yeah. that in the end spits out kind of a nice um, quantitative artifact or object that allows you to relate a sectoral industrial policy mm. and government spending to, and it gives you a way to map that into what, how does that affect aggregate GDP? Mm -hmm. um, and so... So there is kind of a device for doing that in a weird, in not a weird way, in a, in a very kind of interesting way, mm. um, in a theoretically founded way. Um, there are a couple other studies that also try to think about, oh, how do we translate these, um, you know, for lack of a better word, kind of microestimates? Mm. How do we aggregate these up to the aggregate level in a theoretically consistent way? The problem being is that there's a lot of stuff changing in the aggregate and in general equilibrium and in all these different mm, markets that mm. are functioning. Um, and so how do, how do we think about these, how these individual estimates scale and kind of aggregate up to aggregate GDP? So what, what, what we can do, and there's a couple of people who've been toying around with this, I think in some really nice ways, is not so much scaling up our estimates and trying to aggregate up our estimates, one thing I've been tempted to do, and one thing I think is useful to do, probably, although some people might be very, um, might disagree pretty strongly with this, but I think taking, for instance, synthetic control trials, synthetic control, oh, I should say, taking synthetic control methods, that is, looking at using these these um, causal tools to look at the differential evolution of the aggregate South Korean economy with and without that policy, 
using an aggregate or using a synthetic a counterfactual. I'm really okay. skeptical of this idea of creating a synthetic counterfactual. Oh, I know you I know you're keen on it. Yeah, 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 yeah. But I really isn't it just guesswork? I'm not as skeptical because there is some type of discipline that goes into creating that counterfactual. Yeah, but how do we know that discipline's any good? Because we can we can visually see it. It's a, it's, we're disciplining it in a way that is coherent mm. insofar as the hypothesis we're testing. Um, but I am sympathetic to people who are like, I'm a little skeptical whether we can create a synthetic South Korea or a synthetic Japan. Or, but what it does give us, I think, mm. is like, well, what were the, what, you know, it can, I think, bound us or give us some kind of notion mm. of what would have happened in aggregate um, Korea, an aggregate mm, Korean GDP mm. with uh, South Korean GDP with or without that policy. I think that's one way to approach it okay. in a more kind of what we think of as a data-driven way um, without having to get kind of very, very, what I say, structural with these other methods. So that's to say, I'm a bit torn with how to do it because there's right. a lot of different ways to okay, do so it. Okay, so you support the idea of it, but you haven't completely. fine-tuned it enough. Okay, completely, I'm with you. Completely. Right, now I have another question. Again, this is beyond the scope of the paper, but I found it interesting. Can you identify which parts of the industrial policy were more important? So there are a range of things going on. The subsidies, the protection, and the export to targets, mm. or otherwise they would be hit with taxes, or otherwise they'd be hit with account, you know, accountants. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Um, and so that that incentivizing them, yes, yes, um, was key. And that and that I think is a, a key problem for industrial policy with the world over. How do you discipline um, business? Yes, yes, yes. And in fact, what usually industrial policy, I guess, to your point, involves a bunch of different level levers and a mm, bunch of different mm, carrots mm, and sticks. Mm, so. Mm. So out of subsidies, protection, mm-hmm. export targets, one, I, can t- I can say two things. Yes. So one thing is that what I see and I, what I think is really important mm-hmm. in this paper um, is I don't find a lot of action with protection, with explicit protection. That is explicit tariffs, explicit quotas. And how do you know that? So I collect old data, some very, very kind of granular data yes. from an old PhD student who wrote a thesis, a great thesis on this. Um, in the 1980s, mm-hmm. uh, a Swiss PhD student, mm-hmm. and the what you see is something interesting in that. Well, I should back up and say, usually East Asian, the East Asian growth miracle. Mm-hmm. Some people really spin it, uh, probably with some mm-hmm. justification, mm-hmm. as a story of protectionism, mm-hmm. explicit mm-hmm. protectionism. You, yes, you know these sectors were explicitly protected. Yes. Yada yada. That, that's, that played a role in them growing. And HCI in particular, this policy I study, is very much associated with protectionism. Mm, mm. But what you see if you look at tariffs and quantitative restrictions, literally, Mm. as they were being used, you don't see that quantitative restrictions or tariffs really were differentially targeting these sectors versus other sectors. Oh, I see. So this is a nice point about you comparing targeted and non-targeted industries. And you're saying the tariffs were more of a uniform and and sector agnostic. Yes. So what was going on throughout this time was they were, if you look at like a plot of tariffs or Mm. or protectionism, it's it's declining. It's just being cut throughout the whole period. Yeah. Yeah. I, I appreciate that Park went to these lengths to make it nice for you to do an analytically rigorous test. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> thank you so it was serendipitous it was but it was also surprising because i thought i was going to write a paper on oh does protectionism work or yeah, not? Right, but, right. but you open the data it's like well there's not much they're just cutting all the tariffs they're just cutting protection across the board across the board of huh. course we can think of subsidies as kind of a non-tariff barrier of mm, course but mm. but so i do think that it was the, it was the kind of promoting the accumulation of capital 
which was probably very crucial. With the commercial banks targeting those industries. Yes, exactly. Um, okay, okay, what about my point about contrasting the subsidies versus the... Export targets. Yes, exactly. Can, yeah. can you distinguish between those? So in my new paper, I'm trying to do that. So in a new paper, I do am revisiting the role that export targets played. And the role they, you know, we mentioned Danny Rodrick, mm. who, who who has been um, a proponent of uh, institutions, you know, industrial policy institutions that bring together pr- private sector and public sector, yes. right? And so South Korea was very much known for this period, or more so the period prior to HCI, when they did promote, have a big export promotion thing. Yes. Um, they had this institution, these export promotion meetings that were kind of meant to bring together the state and the the kind of leaders of industry, the kind of most prominent capitalists in the economy, to coordinate and guide and to kind of share information about export targets and export performance. Uh, and so you see continuity in the export incentives in the 1960s and the 1970s, that regime of export incentives didn't really change what you're saying what changed in the 70s was the subsidies so what i see is so it's to be seen the export promotion meetings i don't know if they played such a substantial role mm. in the 1970s as they had in the 1960s and early oh, 70s interesting. but 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 that said i think i can in this later study now that we have the transcripts of these talks and now that we know kind of how they functioned we can get a sense to maybe how and maybe the contribution that export promotion meetings and within that export promotion targets had on this policy. I like um, the, I like the, the methodological comparison. So here you can test whether it's the subsidies, the tariffs or the export incentives that mattered by comparing one target in non-target industries and two comparing over time. Exactly. That's yeah, cool. Yeah, yeah, that's really yeah, cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm. So that's to be seen. Um, again, my hunch is that export targets really were at work and really were the focus of a previous era of Korea. Yeah, mm. which isn't to say exports weren't important during this period, but the real kind of bread and butter of the export drive, which which meant these export targets. There were export targets here, but the focus on export targets, in my reading, was from an earlier generation. Interesting. We'll How see. Interesting. Though I, I, I guess you mentioned sort of export meetings. I guess the question is not so much the meetings, but then what happens to the firms that don't meet those targets? Sure, exactly. The, the, the enforcement or the sanctions, the penalties. Okay, now I have a question. So... Economic seminars are widely known for sometimes being a little bit aggressive, sometimes having some <laughs> tricky questions, yeah, mildly yeah. tricky. I'm curious, Nathan, what kinds of critical questions that people raise when you present this work? What Ooh. are their concerns? That What are their doubts? What riles them up? So in general, I think anyone doing industrial policy, um, you get a lot of bite back from even kind of broaching this topic really yeah there there is there is a lot of um skepticism of just the idea of exploring industrial policy empirically just the topic topic, Ah! it's it's kind of a non-starter for some people um um yeah oh we know this doesn't work oh and i think a good a, a kind of even a good um um a good criticism even from people who are skeptical is this criticism that well you're studying a policy at a time when you know this is a GATT world, a world where some of these policies were, uh, countries were able to engage in some of these controversial policies legally, whereas now countries are very uh, kind of constrained. Oh, so they don't see this economic history as policy relevant today? Exactly, exactly. There is, which was a fair criticism in the sense that, you know, if you do think that 
industries or, or kind of certain countries were raising um, tariffs or in particular were doing export subsidies. Export subsidies are of course super controversial now and get you in kind of hot water under various multilateral agreements. Um, so I think that is a really fair kind of... Okay, um, all right, so let's suppose, so there are some people who just don't come because they don't find it interesting or they don't find it of uh, contemporary relevance. Of the people that do come and listen, what concerns do they raise? So there's a lot of good questions about one of the... I'm going to get nitty-gritty econometrically. econometric oh, yeah, sure, here. Um, sure. Who doesn't so, want that? Well, yeah. Great, great, <laughs> great audio. <laughs> great, great podcast content. Yeah. Um, no, don't tell me, please. I so, like, so, so, um, so there is this idea that, you know, using the methods I use, that the treatment of a policy, you know, we're examining... You know the, the effects of a policy causally that that poli and we're looking at you know a set of control industries control units mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and treated units mm -hmm, treated mm -hmm. industries and so fundamentally we often don't want that treatment to pollute the control industry right absolutely right right that's and, the point of a control yep that's the point of a control but what i'm saying in this is actually that pollution does occur in the fact that you do have this policy vis-a-vis -vis linkages yes. interfering with these other units that aren't being treated. That is, you know, have a control group and a treatment group, and you do have this idea that there are these network linkage effects such that the effects of this policy, not only on the, the sectors that are directly targeted, the industries and firms that are directly targeted by this policy, but you also do, by construction, by if you take linkages seriously, you necessarily have... The fact that you, there there are industries in but the wait, control But wait, can I just group. ask a question? Oh, Does that it. necessarily count against your argument? Because let's suppose mm. that uh, steel is very successful and has positive spillovers into the non-treated sector, then the non-treated sector would perform better, so the difference wouldn't appear that massive, but the difference not appearing that massive would only be an indication of the treated sector working oh that's good intuition no i think that's fantastic i think um yes i and of course i am sympathetic to those types of arguments about it but of course there are some technical um um some technical foundations of the methods i'm using that are violated by this right of course you i think that this type of reasoning is is uh is is useful in many cases i think and what i do find to your point it's more so the negative and positive effects of these linkages tend to wash out, right? They tend to net out. Tell me more. Because so if, as I said in this, in this, in this, uh, in this piece mm. and earlier about linkage effects, there are positive linkage effects, but there are also negative ones. Right. So it seems like when I do try to control for these linkage effects, these spillovers, keeping intact the main regression specification, keeping intact this, you know, comparison of treated versus non-treated sectors. Directly treated versus directly. Is there anything that you can do methodologically to try to? There are a couple of tricks I'm working on. Oh, yeah. And it actually, it also kind of through this, I've talked to some people about some econometric, some new directions with econometrics that we can pursue, thinking about linkages, um, thinking about this issue of spillovers, um, and how they might confound. Um, the use of causal tools. There's also a couple people in the play space um, 
in the place-based evaluation literature who've also thought about these types of issues as well. Oh, I see. So if you could look at the, compare the effects geographically. So for example, suppose the targeted industries are in a specific space and the other non-targeted industries are in another locale, then oh. you might be able to work out some impacts by comparing subnational variation. Oh, oh Do no. you get around it like that or not? Oh no, that's a good, that's a great, that's an interesting suggestion, but that's not what I meant. What I meant is like, okay. what they look at is, they just, what I meant is something much more simple, is that like, obviously, they tend to, <laughs> oh, you're unbearable. <laughs> what yeah. they tend to do is they tend to look at, um, they just tend to face the same issue. Right, yeah. That yeah. people doing place-based policy evaluation just tend to also deal with this issue of there's going to be geographic spillovers. Yeah. Maybe probably vis-a-vis -vis networks and, mm. and, um, mm. and supply chain linkages. But um, this is going to be a problem for all industrial policy. Like, even if one tries to do really rigorous econometrics work like you do, because of the fact of spillovers... Yes. So I'm interested. Can you tell me, like... For new PhD students starting out, suppose they're excited by the Green New Deal, they're excited by industrial policy, they realise that there's so much that we don't know and they want to go headfirst into this, but then they realise this this conundrum, this challenge, this uh -huh. inherent to, to inherent to, to, to industrial policy is the fact of spillovers. Yes, so I think... So I how, think... Do you, how do you approach that method? How might other people approach that methodologically... How do they resolve it? Well, in a, in a, in a way, it's it's nice that there is a space. That this thing, I think, is necessary to kind of confront. And people, mm. again, there have been some people who have and are attempting to confront this. But I think the other point was really powerful that um, if we're thinking about firms and if we're thinking about industrial policy and we're thinking about industrial development, there's probably going to be these types of issues going on. Yes. Because there's there are every country has a supply chain. Every country yeah, has sure. these kind of intersectoral linkages. Yes. So, you know, using and thinking about, you know, treated versus non-treated sectors mm. as things that are kind of um, atomized and distinct from one another, mm. it gets kind of hairy when you unpack that. I mean, when you unpack what that means mm. realistically, and so so I do think there. Pragmatically, I think it, there's a lot that, you know, there's a lot we work with pragmatically mm. in research design that we have to deal with. Um, and a lot we haven't worked out with yet or haven't worked out yet. Could someone else use this methodology of comparing targeted and non-targeted industries to look at IP in other places? Yes, absolutely. I think a lot of us are. A lot of people who do study industrial policy, it's kind of a natural methodology mm -hmm. to use to study industrial policy econometrically. And it's a methodology, that, it's a class of methodologies that many of us have used to kind of unpack the effects, what we think of as the causal effects of industrial policy. I think it lends itself to studying industrial policy across a wide number of contexts where we are using within country variation and tracking industries, um, geographies, administrative units or firms through time. And... I would implore just any, I, I, as a graduate student, as a PhD mm. student, I think the world of industrial policy is vast and there's a whole lot of work to do there. And in general, I think it's a very nice space to work in right now, just because there's so many instances of industrial policy around the world. I think a lot of scope to apply contemporary econometric tools creatively in these contexts to explore the impact and efficacy of industrial policy. And I think as a PhD student, that would be an exciting thing to work on right now um, because the tools are sophisticated enough to 
attack some of the issues I myself deal with. And um, the terrain is such that there's just a lot of instances of, of these policies all around the world, many of which have never been really um, studied in a very uh, rigorous way. Mm. So beyond the tools, I think there's a lot of scope to study this stuff and to unpack it and to understand it. And we know very, very little about industrial policy in general. Nathan Lane, you've been unbearable. Thank you. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Had a pleasure. This is great. And thank you. And thank you, Sudo, for also. Saying... Oh, yes. Yes. Thank you, Sudo. Thank you very much for your questions. It was fantastic. They were, they were brilliant.